Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Grape and Find Unfiltered. I'm your host, John Griffin, and today we continue our conversation with Brendan Carter of Unico Zello, where Brandon will talk about natural wine, nature responsiveness, and the state of the Aussie wine industry as a whole. All right, Brandon, it's all yours. Take it away. cooperative model in the world in the world but there are some that are just like you really look up to like Produttore del Barbaresco for example sure. amazing cooperative amazing wines at all price points can control some of the most amazing vineyards to some of the more bulk vineyards that would be the hope that if one day we could get to that point in Australian wine that's next level you know it's the same thing with Unicozillo as long as we're employing nature responsive design to our vineyards we make things like natural winemaking just happenstance like they don't become a dogmatic philosophy See, the thing is, like, if we can figure it out where we are, there's no excuse why you wouldn't be able to just do it everywhere completely. Sure. Like, if we have a look at just analysing the natural wine movement, which in Australia is very pervasive, very, very pervasive and very well-developed, you know, the best and the worst wines I've ever tried have come out of that movement. And this is the thing that no one is talking about. The fact that the best and the worst wines can come out of that movement means the movement itself is the blame. The movement is just a movement. It's mm-hmm. just a fact. But how does good wine and bad wine be made from the same decisions? There's something wrong there. And we wholeheartedly believe and can quantify scientifically that the fact that we have those bad bad wines, we look at those individually on a case-by-case basis, 100% of the time they're due to either one of two things. Either dirty winemaking, which is to account for, I would say, unexpectedly, the vast minority of cases. Oh, really? Totally. We blame dirty winemaking... And sure, it can lead to it, but by far the biggest problem is the fact that they're, they're trying to employ natural methods using the wrong stock, using the wrong medium. They're using grape varieties that are planted in the wrong place and grown in the wrong way. There is a misunderstanding of viticulture, or a lack of understanding of viticulture. If you can grow a grape at a really great pH, harvest it in a really great way, use minimal or no water resources to, to which dilute acidities, uh, then you can arm a winemaker with grapes that are going to be very stable, that are, are going to be able to wild ferment at the, the, the perfect pH range, which will select for the ideal yeast. So we really want a below pH of 3.8, but above a pH of maybe 3.1, 3.2, although it could be lower. Once you get to lower ends of the spectrum, you start to, to worry about a few things. At that pH range, we need to ensure that our acidities are in the right, what we call distribution. So you can't just grab any old grape variety and just pick it early and get 9%, like pH yeah. 3.2. How you do, but you're, you're going to be so heavily laden with malic acid and it's going to taste green. You're still going to make a shit wine. So really it comes down to that site selection. Now, if you have really good site selection, it's so forgiving. You could have dirty winemaking, you could probably still turn out an amazing wine. But even if you're a little bit off, that is going to show in the winemaking if you're not paying 110% you know, attention. And if we can get that proven on our model and, and actually have it be successful, that's the key thing here. Like, if we are wildly successful, everyone else is going to look to us to replicate, and we want that. We actually want one of the big guys, the penfolds of the world, to look at us and be like, look, Unico have managed to get it done. Why can't we? Sit down as a big board, make some decisions, turn some vineyards around, change the viticulture, bring it into the winery, make some great natural wines, sell them overseas, change the global perception. They have a bigger marketing budget. They, they have the ability to change. Oh, they could change the world. Totally. If they want to. Totally, if they wanted to. 
And the only thing that we can do to get them to want to is make profit. Yeah. So we are aligning profitability with sustainability, the thing that moves the earth with the thing that moves people. That's basic economics. It's just switching it into the natural realm, that's all. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're talking about natural wine. You know, if a grape doesn't naturally grow in the environment it's grown, mm. or what the and thing, even then, thing like trying to grow. Totally. And, and we have not like, very natural. Don't take it as like, there's also like the most basic argument of, well, why the fuck do you trellis then? Why the you know, yeah. hell do you prune? You know, well, there's a human element to making wine. Yeah, wine exactly. doesn't make itself. Wine doesn't make itself in a grape and happen to fall into your mouth. Absolutely not. But I also don't think wine needs... Uh, you know, tartaric acid out of Italy or China. I don't think it needs inoculum that's been isolated in a lab in Switzerland or Canada, exactly. or selected from a vineyard in France or Italy. It doesn't need uh, montmorillonite or kaolinite, is what we call bentonite from, from the US or the UK, respectively. It doesn't need diatomaceous earth out of China or Italy, or that's been pressed in Czechoslovakia into perlite, you know, or, 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 or filtration discs. Why we continue to make wine in Australia, you know, using maturation of French or American casks or Caucasian casks or Slovenian oak casks is just beyond me when we have the most amazing array of native woods, which our country makes illegal for us to actually put into. Really? Yeah, it's just very odd. It is very uh, odd. Yeah, we use, and look, there are things that you can't avoid, you know, just due to production costs and pressures and quality, to be honest. Things like glass will come from China or the UAE, funnily enough, or we might import it from France or Italy because we don't have the, the scalability of production in Australia to be able to make it as good as quality at that price point. So some things we need to forego, but the inherent qualities of the beverage, we all have the ability to be able to, as long as we select for the right grape in the right place, we have all the tools readily available in our locality to be able to turn out an amazing wine. And that's why you've chosen, you know, Nero Diavola, Fiano. Absolutely. Uh, and there, there are a range of other varieties that will do really well as well. I've mentioned Arinto, Frappato would be mm -hmm. fantastic. Uh, Greco we've just seen as having an amazing potential, I feel. Um, you know, we've seen Zabibo, absolutely. Keep in mind, old vine, pretty much everything is already adapted to its site. Exactly. I'm yet to see a heavily irrigated old vine anything in Australia. But see, the thing is, think of it this way. I, I would argue in a, in a simple sense, very, very simple sense, that a 90-year-old Syrah vineyard is going to respond to its environment the same as maybe a 10-year-old Nero. You kind of kind of cut out the middleman in terms of time when you, you're looking at great exactly. varieties that are, that are what we call nature responsive. It's easy for us to be able to understand in Australia because we do have this subtle link to indigenous culture and heritage. They have this concept of belonging that is so intrinsically a part of their culture. Like the concept of digging a bore or bringing water or irrigating is not existent in their culture at all. They don't, it's like trying to invent the iPhone when mobile phones don't even exist mm -hmm. yet, right? So they would walk onto a plot of land, look up and be like, well, it doesn't rain here. So it might be a really good place to put some houses or like make a settlement. We might go and search for where rain falls to plant shit. We don't do that. And that gave them the appearance of being quite nomadic in our country. They weren't nomadic. They just had a very different system to be able to live by. That meant that they had to keep moving because the regeneration of areas in Australia takes a really, really long time. Now, what we've gone and done is created land titles. You bought a piece of land, it happens to not have rain on it, but you own that land and you can't accept failure. So what you do is you dig a bore and you get a bull to do that and you take it from the... You truck in water, you do Totally, you, 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 you need do to these do. things and you make it profitable. And I'm just like, look, I'm all for farmers not having to sell out their lands and accept that they bought a shitty plot of land or their grandfather did. I'm all for that. I just think maybe just change what you're growing or how you're growing it, being nature responsive. That's why we started things like a distillery that actually monetizes native ingredients to stretch the, I guess, the, the barrier 
of agriculture in Australia. So it does encompass people that seriously should not be growing grapes. They should be growing something completely different. Yeah. The problem is no one's going to buy finger limes or desert limes or bunya nuts or river mint or wattle seed or all these things that probably make no sense to you. But for an Australian, they, they, are, they are native ingredients. You know, if you drive and develop a market for, you know, there's going to be demand. Yeah, it might be the next big thing. You never may, know. Maybe, but see, here's the thing, you know, the fact that we started, maybe this is just ignorance brought about by age, but we started this when I was 19. You know, we've got one thing on our side that actually is time, funnily enough. We can actually take some time with this. Mm-hmm. We can take the next 30 years to grow the market for wattle seed or grow the market for Unico Zello Fiano. And the odds are actually in my favour. You know, it was 1973 the first Australian Chardonnay was made. 1973 only? 1973. The wow, that's crazy. model wine, Australian Chardonnay, was made. Huh. It wasn't that long ago. The amount of time that I'm going to be making and selling Fiano is the same amount of time. Now, we have seen Riesling rise in that time. We have seen Chardonnay rise in that time. We've seen Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Grigio rise in that time. We're going, going to see Fiano. It's just a matter of time. That's my belief. And it's based on scientific fact and as a pure business owner and investor, it's based on that fact. And it's happening. People are actually... It is happening. Buying have, Fiano and growing Fiano. I have so much proof. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, Viognier, I never thought would be a thing. You know, I think Australia's done a is swing it a, and a miss with certain Is things. it a thing? I don't think it is. I don't believe I don't it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, but it is many it. companies have tried. I just think the basis for understanding that variety's potential in market was a little bit misplaced. Yeah. I think also it was trying to go on the coattails of Syrah in general. Rome, Probably. And we, and we have like an arrange of all these new plantings are coming into Australia of things like Grenache Blanc, Claret, mm-hmm. and a few other things. And, and I'm sure they'll make some really great wine. I'm, I'm just not sure of the big, wide, massive commercial reality of that. I'm just, uh, Fiano holds so much more interest and narrow in the marketplace. Although I'd love to be wrong, assuming those great varieties can be dry grown. If they can't, then I, I definitely don't want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty amazing because you know we tried all your wines. The ripeness is there. The Fiano's got mm-hmm. great acidity. Totally. Yeah. The acidity is there. Yeah. Are they acidified? No. No, they're no. natural. No, all natural. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I mean the, you know, Nero Diavola. It's low totally. alcohol. It's like eleven point eight percent. Yeah, eleven eight yeah. percent red. That's yeah, like, no, from Australia, from the from desert. Australia, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no malic acid, you know, really, really quite quite ripe. Wow. Yeah, just, just ripe in a different way. Yeah, exactly. But if you look at, you know, like I said, where our populace lives, they're the wines that coast. make sense for yeah. Australians to drink. That's all we need to do. That's literally what we, we nature responsive, make it for what the locality would drink. That sets the scene for whether or not other people want to consume those. But funnily enough, we would probably end up selling those wines in places that would be remotely similar. You know, for example, Neradavla. Goes great with anything that's charred. Look at what they, they charred or salty. Look at what they grow in Sicily. Yeah. Look at the food. Look at everything. You know, whether it's fennel or artichoke yeah, or, or sardines. Yeah. Totally. And it's and cooking over coals, open fire cooking. Very common thing. In fact, if you chose anything from a hot region, cooking over coals would be a normal thing. What has evolved just in the natural course of time inside Australia? Cooking over coals. And it's always been a thing, funnily enough, for 80,000 years. You know, now we've got the wine that goes with the food. Cool. And this is the key thing. I can't make great Aussie wine without knowing what great Aussie food is. That's a whole different subject <laughs> because, you know, we have no idea what Australian food is. Yeah. Neither do we. And you have such great food culture here. 
it makes sense that you craft the wines the way that you do. And in every single state, whether it's crawfish in New Orleans, fried chicken down there as well, hot chicken in Nashville, um, red slice in, in New York. With that being said, though, I find that we you know, here in Seattle have a similar problem because we have a lot of people from everywhere and there's no singular defining You, would, you wouldn't say that you guys aren't really into seafood? A lot of people don't like seafood. <laughs> which is true and it's totally. bizarre but and at the same time yes we have all these but natural a- products but because where the vines are planted where the wines are being produced they have nothing oh, yeah, to yeah, do yeah, with yeah, the sea yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're totally. across the mountains in a hot desert totally know? but like the thing that I would associate as a global citizen and now I don't live here I don't breathe here but I would say Washington's pretty darn good at Riesling uh, it has been, but you know, again, they're probably changing shifts, changing. I'm not uh, too I mean, sure. Riesling where used to be like one of the largest planted grapes here, and then it it does, became, that does actually make sense. But then, <laughs> but then it became all about five dollar Riesling from the big producers, totally. and so you know, a few people have tried to do nicer Rieslings. I don't mind. I don't you know? mind the concept of coming here and having five dollar Riesling. Yeah. The five dollar Rieslings that have been produced by you know Sam Michel. Yeah. They're pretty good. They're, of course they're going to be pretty good. You know, they're not bad They're going to be nature responsive. That's yeah. the thing. Because being nature responsive and having great variety that requires minimal inputs allows you to do it at remarkable efficiency. Mm-hmm. Right? So you can you can put something in the ground, have it grow really well, uh, and not actually have a lot of cost inputs involved in that. I go to Provence and I smash five euro, not even that, two euro bottle rosé. It's freaking fantastic. Do happy. I buy Whispering Angel? Yes. You know, different price point no matter where I am in the world. I don't think price point in one sort of area locality, even if it's really good quality, would take away from the, the governing thing of the reason why actual people buy wine, which is brand. Mm-hmm. People buy wine based on brand, story, authenticity, etc. Now, if you have a $5 Riesling here and that same $5 Riesling in Australia is like $30 or $40, that's a problem. And that won't that won't stack up yeah, at definitely. all. It, and it won't last. It simply won't last. However... The premium will be the premium no matter where it is. So even if it was like 40 bucks here, it will probably be like 60 or 70 bucks in mm-hmm. Australia and people would accept that. But it builds diversity. Like I'm not going to be out there and waving the banner and saying all wine needs to be expensive and all wine needs to talk from where it is. Hey, I am all down. I'm the biggest hypocrite ever. I'm all <laughs> down for like commoditized wine at a cheap price point for a Wednesday night sure. or even a long lunch. Sick. Yeah. That is, that's what makes our wine industry so special. I just think that we, in Australia in particular, we lack a lot of brands talking about, I think, a more authentic story about sight and soil and understanding and appreciating the ancient land at which we get to grow grapes in. And the story that we get to share about that globally, I think it's really unique. It's not like we want to come in here and take market share from like, you know, it's not about that. If a whole bunch of people start drinking because they really love it and they love the brand and love what we do and they can align with it and it makes their day happier for a while, awesome that's great but if they don't agree with the cultural item that we bring to them that's also fine as well it's not their job to like it you know we can't force them into anything yeah. they'll deem if yeah. it's worthy or not we just want to be able to share it that's all well that's cool speaking of food what time is your uh i don't have a re- reservation okay, i'm just going to roll in there and okay, be cool. total so, badass and smash some oysters uh so okay so we were talking briefly about the aussie industry as a whole the Aussie industry as a whole is, is a really quite diverse place, but it's really juxtaposed at the moment. It is dominated by uh, four or five incredibly large brands mm-hmm. that have had a very big agenda in, in terms of like what they grow, where they grow, how they sell. Uh, and in particular in Australia where, um, you know, we have this this concept called tall poppy syndrome where, mm. uh, you know, if 
we're all for the artisan, we're all for the underdog, but if they get a little bit too big for their boots, they get a little bit, you know, too successful, we drag them right down. Shut them down. Totally, and it's really bad because, um, like I said, the only wineries that really get exposure in somewhere like the United States are these big wineries. Yeah, definitely. And so the moment that we start doing it, we start yelling about it, we start getting on social media and talking about it, we kind of get crucified inside Australia because they go, you must be that big, you must be a sellout. And that's something that we're trying to move against. We're not actually that big. We're a 10,000 case winery. It's not actually in the grand scheme of things that big. We would love to be around about 50. I think that's where the sweet spot for us will lie because we're not going to be the Penfolds. We're not going to be the Yolumbas. We don't want to. We want to be that. I think this is the tough thing for a lot of Australian people in general as well is to define what they're not. That's hard because you're accepting limitations. In the Australian wine industry, you've got a class of wineries that accept no limitations and just are overt. They make overt wines, they do overt marketing, they do things that make people kind of go, oh, that's a little bit out of touch. But they're very important to our wine industry. I wouldn't be able to buy bottles or labels or uh, access these grape varieties if it wasn't for them or even have like Australian wine be a thing. They did a lot of work for a long time building our wine industry. And there's a lot of of, like, like love to be paid towards that. It's about where do we go to from now? We've been waiting for 10 years to see something interesting happen and we, we co- collectively kind of haven't. So now we're going to step in and kind of go call, either call them out on it or, or change it ourselves or take it upon ourselves to do something unique. But we're not the only ones. There's like a raft of small producers just like us doing that as well. They're just getting over the fact that if they were to start exporting, they're not selling wine in Australia, they're probably going to cop a lot of flack. We've copped flack inside Australia for what we're doing because we have some sort of sense of commercial reality and the fact that I'm going to be around in 50 years. I'm actually literally going to be around in 50 years with the wine industry and in Australia, and I hope it's going to be very healthy and very sustainable. Things that we're doing now are trying to ensure that's going to happen. Well, I think you're on a pretty good pace at the moment. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be you know, it's going to totally. happen. Especially if you give yourself 50 years, it's going to happen. Totally, yeah, exactly I mean, right. Well, like, you're in for the long if I, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I can't do it in 50 years, I really suck. Uh, uh, you know, so yeah. like, I think... I, I, the odds are odds are with us as long as we stay the course and put our heads down and do the really good work for sure absolutely of course it's going to happen well that sounds great well Brendan I think we're going to wrap it up and get you out of here so you can go eat some oysters <laughs> Thanks, I know John. you've been craving some oysters <laughs> no thank you Thanks, and uh, hopefully we'll catch you the next time you're in town. And uh, if not, maybe in Australia. Of course. All the more welcome. I'm ready to go right now. (laughs) Cheers, John. Smashing oysters and French rosé. That Brandon's crazy. Oh, I'm not sure if I can use that word anymore. And I love the part about him being a total hypocrite. That's a refreshing attitude. Anyway, thanks, Brandon, again, for taking the time. And thank you for listening. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode coming up, where we'll be introducing Dovecoat from the Gascon. Until then, have a good week.